Joel chapter 3, Judgment on the Nations and Restoration of the People of God. Joel 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head, since you have taken my silver and my gold brought by my precious treasures to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain." So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. In this chapter, there are two main issues going on here. One is that God gathers the nations to judge them, to punish them, and then two, to give deliverance, restoration, salvation, redemption to his people. These are the two main events in this chapter. This chapter has been 
variously interpreted. Some think that there are literal fulfillments that happen in two or three or more times in history. And then finally, before the end of the world, that uh, there is a great battle like the Battle of Armageddon. And this is what Joel is describing. He's describing various events of history and then a final battle. And ultimately, God is victorious in Christ. The problem with that view has to do with the fact that in any period of time, if we were to take these words literally in terms of their fulfillment, in terms of battles, winning over battles, judging the consequence of judgment, and then the, the future condition, the happy condition of the people, it doesn't fit any single period of history. Neither the punishments nor the deliverances fit any single period in history. In fact, if one mentions a a given period, it's easily shown that all of this does not get fulfilled. None of it gets fulfilled in any one period. So what is it that we should think of this chapter? How should we interpret the chapter? It seems that the best approach is to take these incidents that refer to human events, such as, let's say, in verse 3. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. If we take incidents like that one as referring to the common sins of the people, where he highlights the common sins of the people, then God is threatening that people like this who refuse to repent and believe in the gospel, their judgment will come one day on the day of judgment. That's how we will take it. That this is referring to or exemplifying, presenting, illustrating various kinds of sins committed by the unbelievers, which sins were perpetuated perpetrated against Judah and Jerusalem, the people of God. However, what they do is common to all nations. It's common to all sinners doing things like that. And so Joel is preaching that those who refuse to repent of those sins will be punished and the people of God, the true people of God, not the superficial people of God, but the true people of God, will be their judges with God reigning and ruling over them on the day of judgment. Then if we look at it that way, and then the condition of the redeemed, if it's permanent, then we see that we're dealing with the future in terms of after the return of Christ, the future blessedness, blessed state of the believers, those who are redeemed. That seems to be the best way to take this chapter, to make it streamline and fit more than not. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, this expression, in those days and at that time, we said from Joel 2.28 that, as it says there, it will come about after this 
that we're referring to the times of Christ. Either those events that take place in his first coming or those events that take place after his ascension and before his second coming or at the time of his second coming. These phrases in the Old Testament, in the last days, after this, in those days, at that time, the day of the Lord is coming, phrases like that refer to the days of Christ, whether his first coming, his second coming, or the time between his two comings. So what will God do in the days of Christ? When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, who is Judah and Jerusalem? Is he meaning the physical people? Is he meaning the physical people throughout one period of time or every period of time? No, because there is no single period of time when all the physical people, the literal offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they were worthy or worthy enough to be restored and to be fully restored. So the Judah and Jerusalem have to be the redeemed. Another name for the redeemed. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. He's saying here that a day of judgment will come when God will gather all the nations and they will pay for what they have done to the people of God in persecuting them, in scattering them, in exploiting them, taking away their possessions, putting them to death. God will punish them. He says it's in the valley of Jehoshaphat, verse 2. Later in verse 12, valley of Jehoshaphat, verse 14, valley of decision valley of decision or valley of judgment. Is he meaning a literal valley or is he meaning a place that is echoing the place where Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, destroyed the surrounding nations? Is he saying, just as I delivered Jehoshaphat, who was few in number, this would be Second Chronicles 20. Second Chronicles 20, just as God delivered Jehoshaphat when he was few in number compared to the surrounding nations, three enemy nations that had amassed themselves in great numbers, God delivered Jehoshaphat from all of the nations. And then they called that valley the Valley of Blessing. Barakah, Valley of Barakah, um, Valley of Blessing. So God says, just like I helped Jehoshaphat when the nations gathered around him and defeated the nations, I will do so also in the day of judgment. Verse 3, they have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. When... The enemy defeats a conquered people. They often cast lots for which 
possessions will be owned by which soldiers or which bands of soldiers. And even here, when they capture boys and girls, they will sell boys and girls for harlotry and for wine. They capture these boys and girls who are helpless, who don't have weapons, who don't have strength. They capture them and then sell them for harlotry and wine so that they may get drunk. Well, that sin, unrepented sin, will be punished is God's point. Verse 4, Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. These nations in the vicinity and surrounding Israel, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, uh, they will be punished. They think that they are recompensing or punishing the people of God and God, but who will win on the day of judgment? God will win on the day of judgment. He will put their punishment back on their own head or their evil deeds back on their own head. As it says in Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. They are going to get what they deserve on their own head. And God will swiftly bring this about. When they don't expect it, they will be punished. He says it'll happen swiftly and speedily. This reminds us of 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Where he says in verses 1 to 11. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be sober, uh, be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Even what they do in Joel 3, verse 5, God will also reverse that. What do they do in verse 5? They conquer and loot. They pillage the temple of God, the sanctuary of God, and also the great houses of Israel, the palace of the king. They do that, and then they take these treasures to their own temples, to the temples of their gods. Why? To celebrate. They're celebrating and they're thanking their own gods, their idols, for giving them victory over the true God, the living God. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, Nebuchadnezzar did the same here. Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar, certainly, he pillaged the temple of Jerusalem, took the wealth to the temple or house of his own God. But who did this? Did Nebuchadnezzar do it? Did Nebuchadnezzar's God do it? Marduk? Did Nebuchadnezzar's God do it? Or did our Lord do it? According to Daniel 1 verse 2. Daniel 1 2 says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. It was God who did that. And just as God did that to punish the people, He will also punish those who worship idols, whether it's the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Philistines, the Tyrians, the Sidonians, whoever they may be, He's going to punish them. So who will be wealthy after the day of judgment? Not they, but we shall be. We shall have immense eternal wealth and they will be paupers, begging. They will be desolate. Um, Whatever they have done, it will be done to them. Just as they sold people into slavery, they will be sold into slavery. According to verses 6 and 8, 6, 7 and 8, they will be sold into slavery. How? Permanently, eternally, they will be slaves. Not slaves of God, but slaves of Satan, slaves of their own flesh. They will be punished in hell forever. 9 and following redemption. 9. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. 
Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness and the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. He's calling everyone to battle. Verses 9 and following. He's calling everyone to battle. But who is going to win and who is going to defeat the others? He's calling on the saints of God among men and he's calling on angels to work together to judge the wicked nations. That's what he's calling on in verses 9 to 17. The saints and angels. The saints, for example, they who are weak, verse 10. Those who are weak, I am a mighty man. There is a day of battle. And on that day of judgment, we will be victorious and the wicked will lose. They will be utterly defeated. Angels are also included according to verse 11. The prayer in the middle of this, Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Your mighty ones is a reference to angelic armies that will come to deliver. And then the gathering will take place, as it says in 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Even in verse 13, we have the symbolism of a harvest. The symbolism of a harvest. And God's presence will overwhelm everything else, according to verses 15 and 16. Overwhelm everything else. No need for sun. There's no sunlight if there's God's light. In terms of God's radiance outdoing the sunlight. And in 16, God is a refuge and stronghold for His people. He's a refuge and stronghold for His people. And when God delivers all of His people, we will know who the Lord is. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. It, it's verses like 17 and even some earlier ones. Verses like 17 when he says strangers will pass through it no more. That sounds permanent. It doesn't sound like it's temporary, lasting 10 years or 100 years. 
in the reign of a certain good king. It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like it's permanent. So if it is permanent, he must be describing the spiritual implications of it, the eternal heavenly consequences of it. Let's see some cross-references on this passage, 9 to 17, that will reiterate what we're talking about here. Uh, That Joel 3.10 is likely speaking of spiritual matters. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, we have here an allusion to Joel. 2 Corinthians 12.10 Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Well, if we are weak in terms of our natural physical abilities... When we trust in the Lord, then we are strong. Just like he's saying in Joel 3.10. At times, it's necessary to wage war, to battle, both in the Christian life, but also after, in the life to come. It will be necessary to wage war. In the Christian life, 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. 3 to 6. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. That's the way of the Christian life, warfare. But ultimately, we shall be victorious. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 to 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We will judge the world and we will judge the fallen angels, the evil angels. We will judge them both. Also, Christ promises to us how all of these people will indeed bow down to us. Revelation 3, Revelation 3, verse 9. Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. These false brethren in the synagogue of Satan who say they are 
Jews, true Jews, but they're really not. They belong to Satan. They're going to come. God will make them come. Come and bow down at our feet and know that God has loved us. Revelation 3.9. And then Revelation, speaking of warfare, Revelation 2.25. Revelation 2.25-29. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We will have authority over the nations, rule them with a rod of iron, and even break them or crush them into pieces in judgment. That sounds like warfare or the punishment of captured warriors. The same in Joel. The analogy of a harvest and angels. Joel uses this analogy of a harvest and angels. Matthew 13 Matthew 13, 24 to 30, then 36 to 43. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat. And went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. 36. 36 to 43 is the interpretation. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. The end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire... So shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We will reap a great harvest. 
a harvest of judgment. Yes, we who are righteous will accompany the angels to punish the wicked, both wicked men and wicked angels. Further, what should we know? What should we know? Verse 16 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. God is like a mighty lion, the king of the jungle, and he will conquer. He roars like a lion. He not only conquers his prey, but he's a refuge and stronghold for his people. Romans 8, 31. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's our refuge and stronghold. He loves us, and no one will take us away from that love in Christ Verse 17 says, Jerusalem will be holy. Strangers will pass through it no more. This has an allusion, a reference to nobody tormenting us, nobody bothering us, nobody afflicting us because holiness will reign, perfection will reign, and there won't be any more trouble. No more trouble. For example, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 11, 6 to 9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters 
cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. No more hurt, no more destruction. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52, verse 1, 52, 1. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. No more come in to you. Now, Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Verse 1. 21, 1 to 7. 21, 1 to 7. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, let's actually read all the way to 8. New heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Is he, is John not describing the new heavens and the new earth in a permanent condition and an eternal permanent distinction between the righteous and the wicked? That's how Jerusalem will be holy and there won't be strangers passing through it anymore in the ultimate eternal sense. Then we come to verses 18 to 21. Joel 3, 18 to 21. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. What is this in verse 18? A contrast Verses 18 and 19. Overflowing of blessings in verse 18 and utter destruction and punishment in verse 19. A contrast here. 
Is he describing a literal time in history? Or is he describing eternal heavenly blessings? Well, keep your place here and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, 6 to 12. Isaiah 25, 6 to 12. 25, 6. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation." For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands, and the unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down. Lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. In verses 6 to 9, we have redemption, eternal redemption, using the terminology of Revelation, Revelation 21, the passage we read, 21, 1 to 8. And he is talking about salvation, full eternal salvation, because there's no more death and no more tears. But it also speaks of us eating a lavish banquet. A lavish banquet. That's the terminology of Joel 3.18. Abundance of food. Lavish banquet. But it's not for everyone, Isaiah says in 10 to 12. Moab and those like Moab will be humiliated for all eternity. For all eternity. Just like Joel 3.19, Egypt, Edom, and others like them will also be recompensed, humiliated for all eternity. Their land will be desolate. A salt pit like Sodom and Gomorrah. In 20 to 21 of Joel, 20 to 21, Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. We have here in verses 20 to 21, also we saw it in 3.17 and 3.16. And one more place in chapter 3, verse 1. In these places, we have different uses of the words Jerusalem, Zion, Judah, different uses. We have to pay careful attention. 
Jerusalem or Zion is first in its basic meaning it's the place of a mountain place of the capital of the southern kingdom or of the whole nation under Saul, David and Solomon in Jerusalem that is the place um, actually in, in the case of David and Solomon, yes, Jerusalem. It wasn't captured yet until David's time. But when they were a united kingdom under those first three kings, they had more or less dominion over the land, most of the land. Well, Zion or Jerusalem also becomes a term, a term of endearment to describe the redeemed people. The redeemed people are called that. Called Jerusalem or Zion. For example, in the Psalms, this is done frequently in the Psalms. We'll go to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Where he says... Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Is he talking about just make sure there's no warfare, physical warfare in the city? Or is he talking about the peace of the people of Jerusalem? The people. Go back to Psalm 121. 121 verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. God keeps or protects Israel. Who is this Israel? Verses 7 and 8 take it spiritually. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. He's talking about their spiritual well-being. Israel's spiritual well-being. So redeemed Israel is in view. Further, we find in 125, verse 5, Psalm 125, verse 5. We could, let's actually start in verse 4, 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Peace be upon Israel. And one more. In Galatians 6.16, Galatians 6.16, the Apostle says, And those who will walk by this rule, peace be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. Peace be upon them, and who is them? The Israel of God. So Israel or Zion, Jerusalem is a name for the people, the redeemed people. Before we leave the subject, it's also a name of Christ. Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, 1 to 3 or 1 to 4. 
If you use the New American Standard Bible, what I'm about to say will be evident to you because the editors of the NASB believe this is Christ. And you'll see that by the capitalization of the pronouns. Verse 1, Isaiah 49, 1-4. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Who is the speaker here? Or who is speaking to whom by verse 3? And he said to me, the father said to the son, the son of God, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. The Father called Jesus Christ the Son, Israel. And lastly, the place where God dwells is called Zion, or Jerusalem. The place where God dwells is called that. Here we have this in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 16. 11, 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. Also Hebrews Chapter 13, Hebrews 13, 14, 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We are seeking the city which is to come. Joel is preaching the same because this. For example, in 3.16, when Joel said, the Lord roars from Zion, he didn't mean God is roaring from the physical Mount Zion. He meant God's roaring from the heavenly Mount Zion or the heavenly Jerusalem because His will is accomplished from there on the earth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.